0: Bibles tonight to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're closing out chapter 3 tonight. We're going to begin in verse 16 and we'll come down through verse number 22. And uh, I've greatly enjoyed this chapter. It's really just broke into uh, three sermons. and um, But some, some chapters will have uh, less than that. Uh, for example, I think next week's uh, text is going to be the whole chapter 1 through 16, just kind of how it flows together. But we'll see how it comes out. Uh, But uh, verse 16 down through verse number 22, uh, the title for the message tonight is Sights Under the Sun. Sights Under the Sun, we'll see a couple more things that Solomon sees and uh, things that he points out to us regarding those. And uh, so verse 16 of Ecclesiastes 3, he says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they, be, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies of the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust they all, to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? We see Solomon brings out a couple things that he sees in the world, right? Now we've all probably had times where we've gone sightseeing, and sightseeing is a wonderful thing, especially as you go and look at different things of creation, maybe some archaeology things that uh, are somewhat intriguing to us. During one of our mission trips to Belize many years ago, uh, we had a free day after we'd done a lot of our mission work, and we went out sightseeing. One of the locals took us to see uh, some things that were unique to the country, right? You've got certain landscapes and uh, uh, monuments of creation. Really, uh, we went to the zoo and saw some of their native animals in Belize. We went to the Mayan pyramids and saw those, and uh, it's very, very cool to see those things. Um, sightseeing's always excited, especially if you're seeing things you've never taken in before. While there's many things in this world that are cool to behold, and we stand in great awe of and creation and things of things of construction and that matter. There are many sights in this world that are not so good to behold immediately to our eyes and might even be disheartening to us. These would be the bad things. These are the things that maybe we don't understand or understand why they're there, things that go against God's ordained order, God's ordained truth. And so Solomon sees much of this throughout this book. The motive of seeing is very central. You're going to see Solomon say a lot, I saw, I saw, I perceived. Uh, in fact, through this section, chapter 3 and into chapter 4, he says, I have seen and I perceived and I saw. He, he repeats those things. And much of what Solomon perceives is from an earthly perspective. We have to keep that in mind. And his earthly perspective here is what points him essentially to the priority of God in seeing with a perspective with God in mind, because that really is what's central to all of this in, when it comes to life. So in our text, he points out two things that he sees uh, that affect our own perception of life under the sun. Notice with me number one tonight, Solomon sees the problem of injustice. Solomon sees the problem of injustice or rather wickedness in the place of justice, which is what we would call injustice, right? You look at verse 16, Solomon's going to point out firstly that justice is corrupted by man. Justice is corrupted by man. Moreover, he says, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, there's two specific places here that are important for justice. And uh, instead of justice, we see wickedness. The place of justice should be a place where that which is right is done. But rather, instead, we see wrongdoing. We see mistreatment. We see oppression, as he'll mention in the next chapter. So what exactly is justice, just to begin with? Justice is a divinely righteous action, whether taken by humanity or God, that promotes equality among humanity, used in relation to uplifting the righteous and oppressed and debasing the unrighteous and oppressors. So at the core of justice... It has the idea of being impartial and being fair, uh, doing what is righteous, what is right. And this can be seen in even the little things of life, right? Um, Often when I hear my kids fussing in the next room, I go and check it out, and usually the problem is, well, so-and-so took this toy from me, and that's not fair. Or, and their response is, so-and-so had this toy for this amount of time, and, I have not got to have it yet, so that's not fair, right? So the idea of fairness is kind of woven into our conscience to some degree. Uh, Justice, what is right? So fairness is built into our being. And where do we most commonly think of justice being done? Well, we think of justice in the court of law, don't we? The court of law is where we tend to think of justice. We should expect that the law, the rules for governing society, are righteous and good. After all, we read in Romans 13, and God ordained the government for that very purpose, right? To execute justice on the wicked and uh, bring the sword against the wicked and to uplift that which is right. Now, some laws may be righteous, but not all laws are, are they? We've had laws in our own nation that are very much ungodly and unrighteous in the very nature of what they are, um, even some laws that are good aren't executed well, right? They're not executed justly. Now, none of us want injustice when it comes to crimes being committed, do we? We want justice for the person affected to be properly treated and the guilty person to receive their due punishment. When we learn of a judge who took a bribe and just let a case go, that upsets us, doesn't it? That's, in, that's unjust, we hear of a lawyer that misrepresented the facts. That upsets us. That's unjust. A witness who lied under oath or a murderer who was let go free knowing he was guilty. We're stirred in our conscience about injustice. So the righteous thing is for the guilty to be properly punished and those dealing in such things as law and order to have the integrity to do what is Right? But the reality is, and this is what Solomon's pointing out to us, the reality is in this world, life under the sun, is that injustice happens all the time in the place where justice should prevail. That's why he says in the place of justice, the place where the authority to execute justice is, he says he sees wickedness. The place of righteousness, he sees wickedness. And Solomon can't do anything to change that. Now, you understand that injustice is wickedness itself and something that the Lord absolutely despises. We see the practice of justice is a repeated command to God's people in the Old Testament just to lay a little bit of a foundation for you. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 16 and look at verse 18 through 20 for a moment, just look at what God says to His people Israel in this text. Deuteronomy 16 and verse 18 through 20, notice this. He says, You shall appoint judges and officers in all of your towns... That the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So, through that text, what do you find was imperative to God's people in that day and time? It was justice. It was that they follow righteous things. Now, there were times when justice was practiced by Israel, and there was a lot of times when the lack of justice is what brought judgment on them. Justice is vital to them in that day and time. You read Isaiah, Isaiah 59, 14 through 15. Listen to this rebuke concerning Israel. He says, justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, and there was no justice. We see a lot of that in our own day and time, don't we? Justice, truth, it's shunned in the public square, right? Now, as you read the whole chapter of Isaiah, that whole chapter of Isaiah central to that is a lack of justice at the core of their problem. So God's call upon his people is that justice be practiced and that they knew they needed this practice. This is what the prophets repeatedly preached to them. Micah 6a, eight, a well-known passage we've probably heard many times, even preached, he has told you, old man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, even in the days of Jesus, justice was still not being followed by the righteous Israel. They thought they were so righteous. But listen to his rebuke of them. Matthew 23, 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and right faithfulness, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So God puts justice as a weightier matter for the people of God, even in the days of Israel. Now, justice was to be practiced based on the holy law of God, a law that was the standard of what is right and wrong. The psalmist put it this way. He said, your righteousness is righteous forever. and Your law is true. So Psalm 119, 142, he loves the law of God. He loves God's righteousness. Now, many laws even today are founded upon the same foundation of those in the Old Testament, right? Why is it against the law to murder? Well, that's God's ordainment. Why is it against the law to steal? Why is it against the law to do this and that? Many of the laws you'll find are rooted in the uh, Old Testament Scriptures, and rightly so. It is, a good, it is a good foundation to build from. We're not under the Old Covenant like Israel was, uh, but you can glean practical things. You can glean principles of, of righteousness and, and good uh, for a society just by what God gave in the Old Testament. And, and so what we find here is that Solomon is assessing this, and he sees that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. Now, the problem's not that he sees wickedness in general or injustice in general. The problem is the place where he's seeing it. It's, it's man's nature. He's going to be wicked, right? Um, we're, you're going to have wicked people who are unjust towards other wicked people. But Solomon's emphasizing the place where justice should be, the place of authority, the place where this uh, should be prevailing. And he sees wickedness there. And so thus, in our world, we see wickedness in all these places. Places of righteousness, we see wickedness. Places of of justice, we see wickedness. From the courthouse to the White House, men in positions of authority, what do they do? They practice wickedness. They practice injustice. And often, it seems that they get away with it. We see evidence of crimes and things that should be prosecuted, and guess what? Nothing. Nothing. Just no justice whatsoever for anything. We see it in politics and all the time. Now, it seems that they get away with it, and when we see that, it seem, when it seems like men get away with these wicked things, there's no justice, what is that for us? It's somewhat disheartening, isn't it? Might be even discouraging. Man, they just get away with everything, we might think. But do they really get away with everything? See, this is the point Solomon's bringing to our attention. We see that justice is corrupted by man, but, letter B, justice is certain with God. It's certain. Now, it may appear that someone's getting away with something, but in reality, they're not going to get away with it. That's why I always say that lying, you never get away with lying because eventually it's going to come out, right? Whether in this life or the next, it's going to come out on judgment day. You look at verse 17. This is the comforting truth in light of the injustice and wickedness in the world. He he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. You notice Solomon's somewhat talking to himself. He says, I said in my heart. Anybody else talk to yourself just to reassure yourself of some things? I do that all the time. My wife thinks I'm going crazy sometimes, talking to myself, trying to reassure myself of things that I need to remember. Sometimes if something goes bad, I'm saying, you know what? I tell myself, it's going to be okay. God's under control. Just remind yourself. But Solomon's saying to himself, this is an examination he's having within himself as he's perceiving the world, these sights. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Now, here's the truth that's comforting for us and for Solomon. It's the truth that the sovereign Lord will bring judgment at the right time. In light of the injustice in the world, it's comforting to me and to us to know that God does and will bring justice on the wicked. There will not be one act of sin, one act of wickedness or injustice that will escape the judgment of God. Now, they may think they escape because they got away with it in the courts or they got away with it uh, you know, from the officer or whatever. But God holds every man accountable for every sin. The murderer who seemed to get away with it will receive his just punishment. The judge who unrighteously gave a sentence, knowingly he'll reface, he's going to face his own judge one day. The king who oppressed the poor and took advantage of the people will stand before the eternal king one day and give an account for that. Now one might wonder why justice is so important to God. This is the part that the world doesn't like, right? They love a God of love, 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 but a God who executes justice and wrath and judgment we don't need to talk about that kind of a God, right? Why is justice so important? Because of the very nature and attributes of God. His very character. It is because God is indeed holy and righteous in His nature and character. You see, God created the world and all things in the world in accordance with His character and His nature. And so His nature and character demand that wickedness and evil and injustice be punished. It demands that. There's no middle ground. There's no gray area. There's no third option. There is only righteousness and wickedness. And wickedness must be judged because of God's righteousness. Psalm 7 verse 11, listen to this. God is a righteous judge. He's not an unrighteous judge. He is a righteous judge. He is a God who feels indignation every day. Some translations uh, refer that as, translate that as, God is angry at the wicked every day. And that's the reality. God hates wickedness, He hates sin, He hates injustice. See, as a righteous and holy God, contrary to what the world may think, God loves justice. He delights in justice because of his nature. That's who he is. Isaiah 61.8, he says, For I, the Lord, love justice. He delights in this. Notice what he says else. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give their, them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. So scripture upon scripture. Utters forth this truth that the one true God is a God of justice, a God of judgment, a God of wrath, a God of indignation, a God of jealousy. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. You see, justice is what the Lord will do without a doubt, you can take it to the bank. He will execute justice. He often does this in history, but he also will do so on the final day in which all men will enter eternity, the judgment day. Isaiah prophesied this truth of Christ regarding his coming and his uh, messianic reign. He said, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's the cause and uh, the 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 power of Messiah. What his what he's going to do? Now we, as God's people, understand this. We must rejoice in this wonderful truth of God's justice. We don't just rejoice in God's grace and mercy on sinners but we also rejoice in His justice upon the wicked. Now, this flies in the face of of many Christian circles. We shouldn't rejoice in God's justice. God rejoices in it. The psalmist plainly says He rejoices in it. God's people should rejoice in this truth. In his justice upon the wicked. But, here's, here's the, but why? Because here's the reality. If God was not a God of justice, then there would be wicked men that escaped the righteous judgment they actually deserve. That's the reality. If God was not just, if he did not execute justice, we could legitimately save the wicked. They got away with it. They got away with it before the omnipotent, omniscient God. But we know that's not the case. Without the justice of God, there is no true setting, setting a right to all the wrongs that have been done. You see, every sin is going to come to light at some point in time. Sometimes it happens in life. If it doesn't happen in life, it's going to happen on the day of judgment. Interesting story happened recently. The other day, Jubilee made a confession about something. She did a couple years ago. A couple years ago. When David was about two, he was probably three, he's probably three. We woke up one morning to find him outside by himself. Well, that's a big no no. You don't have a two year old or a three year old outside by himself, sitting out on the deck, just hanging out, you know, doing what he wanted. And Jubilee had run into the room and said, Mom, Dad, David's outside. Well, David got a little spanking that day, saying, Hey, you do not go outside by yourself ever, ever. Well, A few nights ago, Jubilee confessed that on that particular day, she told David to go outside. And then once he was outside, she ran into the room to tell on him to get him in trouble so that we'd be delighted in her but upset with David. Well, we used that opportunity to teach her. Now, that was sinful. Even though we didn't know it, God knew about that the whole time. We didn't know about that for a couple of years, but God had a record of that long, all the way back from when it happened. I use that as a point of illustration to show us that what we do that's wrong is going to come out whether you confess it or not. It's not hidden. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. Now, we might think this, and this is often the question. Yes, we want God's justice. We want to see him bring judgment that the wicked are worthy of, why doesn't he execute justice right now? Why does he wait until later on the final day? Well, there are several reasons we could point out. One being, he's not done saving sinners. Aren't you glad God didn't execute justice immediately on you? You see, he's, he's long-suffering to usward, Peter says. Those who are his people, he's going to bring to himself. So there's, 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 there's that, that aspect but then we look at the wicked, we know there's, there's going to be a judgment day for the wicked who, who will not be saved. So, sometimes we look at the wicked of the world and we wonder, why does God allow them to continue? The psalmist asks the Lord this in Psalm 94, 3. He says, O oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? Or how long shall they prosper? How long shall they be lifted up? Have we ever wondered the same thing? We see the wicked and their evil ways and how prosperous they are, and we think that's just not right. It's not right. Beyond that, there are those who have been unjustly treated by the wicked through oppression, persecution, even martyrdom. We think, will there ever be justice upon those who persecuted them? This is the question for the saints who were martyred in Revelation 6, 9, and 10. Listen to this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God... And for the witness they had borne, they cried out. These are the slain. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How many millions, if not billions in all of the history of God's righteous people have been slain at the hands of wicked men? Why does the Lord wait well, Solomon says here, For ed, there is a time for every matter and for every work. He's really recalling what he opened this chapter with in verse 1. Remember what he said? For everything there's a season and a time for every matter unto heaven. And guess what? There is a time in which God is going to judge the wicked. Now, sometimes he does bring a temporal judgment in history, but there's going to be an eternal judgment where no man will escape eventually on the last day, Right? You see, you see, God has a purpose in His timing and in His providence over executing judgment as He's ordained to do. You understand this, that the wicked even have a purpose in this world. The Lord has made all things for Himself, even the wicked for the day of evil. All of history, with all of its evils, will come to a time in which the fullness of God's perfect purposes for the world will be complete guess what, Christian? The wicked will receive exactly what they justly deserve, and God will reward them rightly. God is always just in what he does. He has ordained this judgment for them at the very end. Paul preached this way when he he was in his missionary journey. He said in Acts 17, 30, 31, The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all men, all people everywhere to repent. That's the command to all humanity repent, turn from wickedness unto God. Now we know that man in his nature, he doesn't do that. Why? He hates God. He loves darkness. He runs from God. Those who do so will receive the due reward of their own direction. They follow their own nature. But here's the command, the reason why he commands all men to repent, because he has fixed a day. It's fixed. Not going to be undone or changed. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to us all by by raising him from the dead. The assurance of judgment to come is the fact that Jesus is risen. His resurrection guarantees a future judgment. So the lesson from this view Solomon has given us, from this sight he sees, is that though the world has much injustice and wickedness in the place where justice should be and where righteousness should be, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Justice will come upon those who are worthy of it. As the old song goes, and one we sing, I don't know if we sing it, but you've probably heard it, a song called This Is My Father's World. There's a lyric in that song that goes like this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. He's still the ruler. Take comfort in God's sovereign justice. Number two, Solomon sees the problem of death. Now, he's touched on this briefly already, but here we see it a little further. The problem of death. There's two aspects I want to bring out here, and I'll try to be brief in this first one because it really is all on the second one. But we see God's testing towards man. God's testing towards man. This is the next sight he sees. Verse 18, he said, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now we see the Lord testing his people in various ways through the scripture, his people. God tested Abraham's faith in calling him to sacrifice Isaac. God tests the faith of all his children through trials and afflictions they go through. But this this text is not about necessarily the testing of faith. It's more about the proving or manifesting a point to humanity about their own mortality. While the sight of of wickedness in unlikely places should cause us to turn to the Lord in faith as the God who's going to judge people at the right time, the sight of our own mortality should cause us to see how truly frail we are and how we should live our life. Now, Solomon is not saying in this text that there's no difference between man and beast. I want you to understand this. When he says that, that um, he wants man to see that themselves are beasts, that's what the evolutionists would want us to believe. They literally say, well, we're just no different than the animals. We just evolved. So we're no different than the primates or the tigers. We're a different kind of higher life form. We are not a beast in the sense that we see this, with this. What's the difference between man and animal? Man is made in the image of God. Animals are not. We're made in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Animals are not made in the image of God, no matter how cute they might be. We've all had our own cute pets, right? Cherish them and enjoy them. But they are not made in the image of God. So why does, God, why does Solomon say that God's testing man or manifesting man, that they may see that themselves are but beasts? You see, the wickedness of man makes man much like a beast in that he lives his life with no regard for God. The psalmist describes himself this way when he became envious of the wicked and the wicked's prosperity. He says of himself in Psalm 73, 22, "...I was brutish and ignorant." I was like a beast toward you when he was thinking like the wicked, when he was envious and jealous of the wicked and his prosperity. He describes himself in that manner. You understand that life itself reveals to us that we are nothing without God. Christ is what makes the difference in our life. And to live a life forsaking God is to live really like a beast in this world. They live their life, go through the motions of life, eat, drink, and then they die. It's what man does without God in his life. Here's what, here's what another psalmist said in relation to this, another reference. Man in his pomp, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beast that perishes. Doesn't matter how high and mighty a man appears to be, if he doesn't have understanding, meaning understanding of God, he perishes just like the beast. And this is the main point, the main contrast that Solomon gives is, let it be God's truth about man. This is This is how Man is like a beast. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. What's the same thing that happens to the beast and to man? The answer is death. Verse 19 says, as one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and the man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. You see, that's what we have in common with the animals, with the beast's. In that sense, understand, this is a particular sense here. In this sense, we're just like the animals because both are going to die. Both are going to die. Now, Solomon already brought up the subject of death previously. He said in chapter 2, verse 14, regarding the wise and the fool. He said, I perceive the same event happens to all of them. That's human versus human. But now he applies it to, to, to man versus beast. And what's he show us here? Man and animals, they breathe the same air, and they're going to die the same way and go to the same place physically. Because of that, Solomon says, man has no advantage over the beasts. Now, understand that this is an earthly viewpoint. When it comes to the earthly viewpoint of life under the sun, this is the reality. Look at the world without God in the picture, without eternity in the picture, what do you see? Man and beast live side by side, they both die. That's what you see. They appear to be the same. Psalm 49, 14. Another reference. Like sheep. Sheep is a beast, right? It's an animal. Like sheep, they are appointed. Man is appointed for Sheol, or the grave. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. Like sheep, man is appointed for the grave. Now Solomon continues in this truth in verse 20. Notice what he says, all go to one place. Now if you pause there and you don't get the rest, you might think that we're all just going to go to heaven with our animals, right? There's a movie as a kid, it's called All Dogs Go to Heaven. It's a cute movie, but it's biblically inaccurate. Don't expect to see your pooch there. I know we miss them when they go. Solomon doesn't mention heaven here, actually. He only mentions the place the body goes in this particular sentence. Where does the body of both man and beast go when death happens to them? Solomon says all are from dust and to dust all return. You see, the dust is where everyone goes when they die. Why is that? God made us from the dust. Genesis 6, Genesis 1 on the sixth day of creation. Genesis 2, excuse me, Genesis 2, 7. We see the specific description of God's creating of man. God formed man of the dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature or a living soul. But what's fascinating is even the animals were made by the dust at God's command. He just spoke and they were brought to pass. Genesis 1, you read verse 25 and verse 24, it says God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock, according to their kinds, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. He made them of the earth. He spoke them from the earth that they were created in this fashion. So, so what do we know about this great problem? This great problem of death is the result of sin and its curse, right? We see another reference, Genesis three nineteen. God says to Adam, because of sin, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's fascinating is that man's sin didn't only affect man, it also affected all the creation. Even the animals, who did not know anything of sin, right? They're just animals. But death has permeated the entire created order. So both die and return to the place from which they are made. We are nothing more really than decorated dust, aren't we? decorated dust. You notice that Solomon says next in verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down to the earth. Now, this has been and still is a great question for most people in this world. What happens when life in this world dies? What happens? Solomon proposes this question based on human perception in this world. Understand this. Solomon knows about the afterlife, about what happens after death. But he's, this is an evaluation of what he's seeing with life under the sun based on human perception. You understand there's no direct, first-hand, empirical evidence of what happens to us once we die, right? Mankind cannot examine the afterlife like he could examine a tree or an animal. It's something they can't do. He can't put the afterlife in a lab and examine what's going to happen after death. It is the realm of the unknown to mankind. And that is one reason why there is such a fear of death. They don't know what's next. They have eternity in their hearts. They know there's something, but they don't know what's next unless they've been told. But understand this. It is unknown only. It's a realm of the unknown only without the revelation of God giving it to us. And this is the wonder of the Scriptures, because God has not left us with a big question mark about what happens when death occurs. The Scriptures teach us plainly what happens when death occurs. The Lord has manifested to us by His Word and the Gospel that there is life beyond the grave. That this world is not all there is. We're not like an animal. We don't just die and then black out. Like many of the atheists or agnostics will say. We go on. And this is the great truth for us Christians. In 2 Timothy 1, through 9-10, what, God's, what Paul says regarding God's saving work, he says of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now, listen to this next sentence, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought what? Life and immortality to light through the gospel. There you have it. He brought life and immortality to light, to revelation, to manifestation to us through the gospel of Christ. The gospel declares to us plainly and more clearly of the eternal life that we have in Christ alone. And here's the great comfort and truth for us, Christian. We don't have a question mark about what happens after the grave. We have an exclamation point. We know exactly what happens the moment you, Christian, take your last breath. You don't black out into nothingness and cease to exist. You enter the glorious presence of our Jesus. Solomon mentions this later in the book, kind of vaguely, but it's still the same principle. Chapter 12, verse 7, the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. Now, there is a difference between the spirit of man and the spirit of an animal. We have no mention of animal spirits entering another realm or abode after they die. There's a lot of theological problems with that. Only the spirits of men. One commentator rightly said, I think it was Matthew Henry. It might not have been. I can't be for sure. But he says the soul of a beast is at death like a candle blown out. And there's an end of it. Whereas the soul of a man is then like a candle taken out of a dark lantern. Which gives the lantern useless indeed. Makes the leaves the lantern useless indeed, but doth itself shine brighter. So we leave off this human body as it returns to the dust, but our soul, our spirit, it goes on. It goes on. That's the real you, if you want to say. Our bodies are merely vehicles. So, so hu- animals, they come to an end, but humans do not. The spirit of a man or one woman enters into another realm. Depending on whether that person was a true Christian or not, meaning whether they've been born again and know Christ by faith alone determines where they're going to be. and As Scripture plainly teaches us, the spirit of the wicked has no place in the heavenly abode with Christ, but rather they enter into the flames of hell while they await the judgment day only to receive the final justice they rightly deserve to enter into the lake of fire. You see, the spirit of the Christian abides with Christ and waits a glorious resurrection day to dwell with him for all of eternity. This is why life and death are so vital and important. Now, given these truths that Solomon sees with life under the sun, he gives us some further application here. He sees the problem of injustice. He sees the problem of death. But there's comforting truths regarding these things. Solomon sees the perspective for man. There's just two very quick things I'll share. Rejoice in the works of your life. Notice in verse 22, he says, So I say, based on all this he's just said, so I say that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his works, for that is his lot. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? He's mentioned this a few times in the book already. He mentioned it earlier in the same chapter, verse 12 and verse 13. We looked at it in our last message We should see that Solomon truly wants us to have joy in life despite the wickedness, the injustice, and the reality of death. We shouldn't let those things make our life miserable. We're meant to live our life enjoying God and the works of our labor as we live in this world. See, we are to live with God in mind. And when we live with God and Christ at the center of our thinking, you and I in the midst of a turbulent world can have peace and joy. We can live what, Paul, what Solomon's saying here. You know, Jesus said this in John 16, to his disciples, I've said these things to you that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It doesn't matter how turbulent the world is. We're in Christ the overcomer. And letter B, and lastly, we see this last application, this perspective we ought to have. We ought to trust God with the uncertainty of the future. Notice what he says. He closes with this question in verse 22. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Who, who can tell us what happens next or uh, after our life or what's going to happen in this world after you're gone? What's going to happen later in your life that you don't know what's, gonna, what, what's down the pipe, Right? Can anyone know what comes after him? Can anyone know what his future will be or how life will be even after he's gone? See, all of these things are out of our control and they're beyond our knowledge. And that's why the centerpiece to the Christian life is a life of faith. We walk by faith, not by what? Sight. That's why we should just live by faith one day at a time. You don't need to be anxious about the future. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. <laughs> How about you? But every day has its own problems, don't it? Don't be so caught up with tomorrow and the next day and the next day or ten years from now that you're not living today by faith. See, faith in the sovereign God is key to this whole chapter we've considered. The whole chapter is woven with God's sovereignty in life and under the sun. So there's many sights to see under the sun, Solomon points out here. He gives us a few that are quite troubling at first, but are helpful to us when we see them through the lens of God working, working over it all and through it all for his glory and also for his people. So I pray there's some truth here tonight that's, comforted you, encouraged you, and things that we can glean from as we've come through this passage.